0: from KQED.
1: I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum, defund the police may be a new rallying cry, but according to Harvard historian Khalil Gibran Muhammad, black reformers, scholars, and activists have been calling out systemic racism in law enforcement for at least 100 years. We'll talk to Professor Muhammad about historical attempts to root out the use of excessive force, racial profiling, and other unconstitutional policing practices, and obstacles to reform. And we'll also discuss whether we as a nation are ready to accept an alternative vision of policing. That's next, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. As the nation continues to reckon with the killing of George Floyd, which laid bare yet again the police's disproportionate use of excessive force against African Americans, calls are mounting to dismantle and reimagine U.S. law enforcement. Harvard historian Khalil Gibran Mohammed has for years been examining the origins and prevalence of structural racism in American policing and why countless commissions, reports, and calls for reform over the last century have not produced meaningful change. Professor Muhammad, who is the author of the groundbreaking book, The Condemnation of Blackness, joins us to discuss what it would take to reconceive law enforcement in the United States. And welcome Khalil Gibran Muhammad.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Delighted to have you. And I have, uh, I must say, been an admirer of your work for quite some time now. And uh, I wanna go way back with you, uh, but let's, go, let's start with 1919 because in your work, you bring attention to, uh, many people know the Emmett Till case, but they don't know the case of uh, Eugene Williams, a 17 year old boy who was stoned to death for actually swimming in what was deemed to be uh, the wrong part of Lake Michigan. And as a result, there was mob violence and uh, there was black protest. And the result, well, the result was uh, a, a city commission report It found systemic racial bias. This is 1919. That's been a pattern. Uh, That is commissions going right up to the Kerner report and even beyond, but no action on those commissions or very little, if any, even attention to those commission reports.
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, 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 what happened literally a hundred years ago in Chicago should have been the beginning of the end of systemic violence directed towards African Americans, uh, both amongst white citizens, as well as within law enforcement. And the investigation was thorough, Uh, several hundred pages uh, looked at every aspect of American society, particularly because it's very important to emphasize this point. The black community had been overwhelmingly Southern uh, right up to the beginning of the 20th century so you've only got about four percent of Chicago's population uh, just before World War One, and it's going to double every decade right up through uh, the 1940s and 50s. So we're not talking about a lot of black people, and yet their small and growing presence upends the kind of equilibrium of race relations in northern cities, and in that way we learn a lot more about today, what's been happening in our country for the past 50 years since the end of the civil rights movement by seeing what happened in Chicago in the summer of 1919 or the summer of 1918 in Philadelphia or East St. Louis in 1917. All these places outside of the South that had these tiny black populations that will grow over time set a pattern in place And that first blue ribbon commission that really examined what the black experience in Chicago was told us that a lot wasn't working, that racism was everywhere in these Northern cities and the instruments of law and order were at the front of really limiting and restricting the kind of freedom and mobility that black people had left the South in search of in the promised lands of the North.
1: Well, you know, I can't help of thinking of Isabel Wilkerson's book, The Warmth of Other Suns, which was about the black migration, uh, when we're talking about those black southerners who settled in the major cities in the north. And there was a discussion we had on this program just last week about uh, the regionality and how did the north become so embedded with uh, with racist policing and with racist institutions, when. It didn't have slavery, but the reality is, and I think you point this out and point this out quite uh, acutely, that um, there there was a kind of a transformation or a translation of the ethos that was in the South. Uh, It didn't have the institutions of incarceration. It didn't have the abilities really to, uh, the infrastructure to put that many people in prison. But that idea of Blacks being criminals really translated entirely into the Northern cities.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, so, the headline would be that uh, Southerners teach Northerners about how to be racist at the turn of the 20th century. (laughs) But it's more complicated than that because one of the things that the Civil War doesn't really help us understand very well is the difference between the end of slavery and the continuation of white supremacy. There were very few white Americans in the 19th century who, who truly believed that black people were made of the same stuff as, as Europeans. So whether or not you were an old American of Anglo-Saxon descent, or whether you were a new immigrant from Ireland or from Italy, there was an understanding in the 19th century, going back to the Enlightenment period, that all Europeans were more superior to all non-Europeans. And amongst the non-Europeans, people of African descent were at the bottom of the racial hierarchy of the world. So northerners had not escaped the understanding that people of African descent were not the same as them, were not equal to them. They just had more commitments to political and civil equality, on paper at least, and they certainly found slavery more abhorrent and anathema to the business of the nation uh, by, the mid, uh, of the, by the middle of the 19th century. So what comes next after slavery It's not just that Southerners export this this virulent uh, virus of racism. Um, It was already in the air, in the ether. What they export is this notion that you'll have to deal with them just like you uh, pointed your finger at us. And they helped to accelerate new kinds of ideas about African-Americans that were unnecessary when the vast majority were enslaved. Those new ideas were meant to transcend regional politics, North versus South, uh, to transcend partisan divides, uh, white supremacist Democrats versus freedom-loving, liberal, radical Republicans. Um, and so they everybody sort of agreed that, okay, we won't just make categorical claims about black people as savages or racists. We'll look to data. We'll have data help us to sort this thing out. And that's when we see for the first time this uh, increasing reliance on crime statistics as the best evidence to make the best case that whether you're in the North, whether you're in the South, whether you're a liberal, whether you're conservative, whether you're a Democrat, whether you're a Republican, like, Oh wow. They really do have a crime problem. They really are dangerous. And we really do have to protect ourselves from them.
1: that goes back even more than a century. You take us back to the 1890 census.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the 1890 census is the very first census that has the kind of national credibility to uh, convince this, to make this consensus work. Uh, Why is that? It's just very intuitive, uh, but it's also borne out in in the historical record. So the South is devastated. Infrastructure is completely destroyed uh, as a result of the Civil War. So when the 1870 census is taken, there's a lot of uh guesswork and sampling that is just not reliable same is true for the 1880 census and so by 1890 the south has begun to recover the new south is emerging places like atlanta uh, become kind of the pride and joy of of the former confederates who are now not only getting in the industrialization game uh because they had been focused on plantation uh, Slavery, but they're also starting to build these Confederate monuments. They want to recover their history. They want to tell a different story of who they are. So the 1890s is a really big deal. It, it also happens to be 25 years after the end of slavery. It's a perfect generational moment. And so the census is much more authoritative. The South is back on its feet. And the idea now is that you could look at an entire generation of African Americans that had never been enslaved. And you could ask, kind of like a a a perfect natural experiment like, oh, what are these people capable of when they've been on their own as compared to what they are capable of when they've been enslaved? And so that 1890 census was uh, highly anticipated and its results uh, were disseminated far and wide. And what did it show? It showed that uh, in the crime statistics, for example, that black people were 12% of the general population but they were 30% of those who were incarcerated, serving time either in a prison in a formal sense behind bars or in a prison farm or on a convict lease term. All of those were counted in that uh, 30% number. And that became the headline for a new normal about saying, now we have objective evidence. The numbers speak for themselves. Here are the facts and the facts tell us that black people have disproportionate crime rates. And those disproportionate crime rates are evidence of a biological or cultural problem. Kind of depends on who's the speaker as to what they blamed it on. But everyone agreed that the numbers were real, that they were verifiable, that they demonstrated danger with the presence of black people.
1: Well, and you mentioned Atlanta. I can't help thinking about Rayshard Brooks and uh, the killing by police there, even in death, uh, whether it's George Floyd or Rayshard Brooks, uh, records are brought up, criminal records are brought up. I mean, there's a sense uh, of, it's terrible that this person died, but nevertheless, uh, there's a criminalization that you have written about so eloquently, and the criminalization still even holds a kind of post mortem aura to it. Uh, I get into police work with you, though, also, because um, you write about the police hierarchy and the way it reinforces white supremacy, and uh, I find some of this very important historical understanding um, and want our listeners to at least be exposed to it. The, the police, from your perspective, going into the 20th century, Uh, were hierarchical, but for the most part were there to simply reinforce the status quo, make sure that, well, I think you point out the German and the Anglo-Saxon police were policing the first immigrants, uh, the Irish and the Italians. When the Irish and the Italians became police, they were policing the Poles, and ultimately they were all policing Blacks because of this idea of Black criminality.
2: Yeah, so so there's no uh, magical moment in the past that we can Uh, look back to this golden age of policing when it was truly fair and egalitarian and only the bad guys got what they deserved. Uh, Policing has always been an expression of political power and social power. And this shouldn't surprise us, um, but it does apparently for for many Americans. Uh, Going back to the 17th century, um, policing, first of all, wasn't the primary instrument of social control outside of plantation uh, slavery. It, It was uh, ministers and uh, powerful, affluent people in a community. Uh, so you can read in the words of of Puritan ministers like Cotton and Increase Mather, their concern about people in the community who might bring disfavor uh, from God's wrath onto the community. So policing evolves. Excuse me, if I may, uh, is- uh, uh,
1: Professor Mohammed. it goes back to the curse of Ham, really, doesn't it?
2: Well, it, it, well, it does. Well, when you
1: but, talk about Cotton Mather and I think about you know the Bible saying uh, Noah's sons were cursed because of the dark son Ham uh, seeing his father yeah, naked. But
2: I, yeah, yeah I, yes, I, there, those uh, theories do begin to emerge mostly in the 19th century. What I'm trying to make a simple point is that even in the beginning, when there wasn't much quote unquote need for modern police officers, there was a need for social control, um, and so the mechanisms of that preceded the bureaucratic form of policing. Now, it is also true that by the late 1600s and early 1700s, most colonies began to pass, not most, all colonies began to pass various Negro acts or slave codes. And at the heart of these slave codes was two things. One, it restricted the mobility and the freedom of black people to come and go, even when it was conducive to the commerce of their their masters. Three or more gathered was, was literally ruled illegal everywhere, including in New York, uh, in New Amsterdam in the 1700s. Um, same was true in South Carolina. The second thing that they, each of these did was to empower a local um, group of people who were kind of an extension of militia, who would have the responsibility as slave patrollers to surveil, track, uh, as well as to dispense corporal punishment uh, to any African-Americans who were deemed um, unauthorized uh, outside of the reach of the plantation that they that they lived on. And this p- pattern and practice of slave patrolling, which lasts literally from the late 1600s through the antebellum period to the end of the Civil War, really defines the vast majority of, of law enforcement in the United States of America before we even get to um, what becomes modern police officers who are wearing uniforms and badges and have some kind of weaponry.
1: Which gives you, I think, the thesis of police protecting white privilege, including not only owners against slaves, but for that matter, corporate or business owners against strikers.
2: Yes. Yeah, so again, if we, if we take the broadest context, uh, when there aren't any black people around, there are still Uh, low-income whites. These are the the, the people at the bottom of a capitalist society. Uh, There are political dissidents. Uh, There are people who are challenging political authority and challenging the ways in which their lives are being cheated from the spoils of their economic output. And who are the people who enforce that inequality? The police. Uh, Sometimes they're private, sometimes they're public. Some of the most heinous acts of uh, political repression in this country came with when private industry hired uh, private detectives like the Pinkerton detectives, which was a national firm that private employers hired to as armed guards at the company gates when employers struck or when they tried to challenge their uh, employers around fair working conditions. Now, again, this might sound like a lot of private activity, but the state allowed for the use of forests by private security forces against workers. So this is before collective bargaining. This is before unionization takes off uh, in the early 20th century. So there's a lot of violence in various forms and iterations of policing, again, before we get to a lot of what we see unfolding in the 20th century.
1: Well, we also see the 13th Amendment having uh, essentially abolished slavery, but all kinds of, as you point out in your writing, uh, initiation of ways to keep things intact, uh, but also keep things intact, not only going back to the Black Codes and all of that, uh, but also keep intact the freedom to work for white people on their terms.
2: Yeah, so the 13th Amendment is just this sort of, it's, it's one of the legal underpinnings of our social contract Uh, that seems to be hidden in plain sight. And that is that the 13th Amendment states very clearly, and I'm paraphrasing the first part, that slavery nor indentured servitude shall exist in the United States, except as punishment for a crime. (laughs) I mean, it's remarkable. Um, When you literally look at the letter of the law, and as you well know, and many of your listeners know, we have you know, a Supreme Court that for many decades has been very committed to originalism, to strict interpretations. And so clearly in America, if we take that line of tact, uh the 13th Amendment said, we can still have slavery in the United States as long as the person is a criminal. And that's exactly what happened. The Black Codes were passed, uh, literally months after the 13th Amendment uh, was put into effect, these Black Codes more or less criminalized every aspect of Black freedom The right to vote, the right to be a parent, the right to come and go as one pleased, the right to be too successful as a business entrepreneur. The one thing that the Black Codes did not criminalize was the right to work for your former plantation owner or some other white landowner on their terms.
1: We're talking, if you just joined us, with Khalil Gibran Muhammad. He's professor of history, race and public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime and the Making of Modern Urban America. So when we sort of digest and process all this history that you have put under the spotlight, we get to the present moment, and I think, as you pointed out, we haven't seen anything like this in probably a half century since the anti-globalization movement. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll use your first two names here, uh, and not to ask you to be prophetic um, like Khalil Gibran, but also to give us a sense of where you think this is all going or where it perhaps might be going, uh, particularly with the abolition movement and the defunding movements being so present now?
2: Well, we're going to see a lot of legislative change at every level. Municipal municipalities are going to look at their relationships with local law enforcement and, and try to determine what changes need to be made, what fixes that they can agree on. We're going to see state level action like we've seen in New York City, where uh, a bill was recently passed and signed by Governor Cuomo to uh, essentially open up personnel records uh, by police officers so that they can be subject to various forms of transparency and accountability. And of course, we've seen uh, President Trump sign an executive order uh, which will create a national database uh, for officers or problematic officers, uh, as well as a very weak um, restriction on choke codes except when an officer feels like their life is being threatening, which is no restriction on chokeholds at all at the end of the day. Uh, and of course, Congress is still working on a new policing bill uh, that uh, will try to push even further. So I think if we take a big step back and look at all that activity, um, I'd say that it's good. Uh, you know, it, I think it matters. The, the devil's always in the details. And so we, we, we have to see what this all amounts to. And I think that the media and the press and And others are going to have to keep a very close eye on what comes out when the sausage is being made over the next several weeks and months, potentially. But if we just think of this as a legislative fix, then I think we will have missed yet again another moment. And that moment is that if if the history that I've told is one that Americans will come to accept, then they have to decide at the end of the day that we just have too much policing in the United States of America, period, hard stop. And we have to fundamentally agree that the culture of policing in this country has been a very violent, punitive culture. Most Americans have literally wanted blood at the end of a police baton or in the use of a police revolver when they, as as citizens, as observers, thought that someone did something wrong. And they were able, and I'm talking about us, I'm talking about American citizens, were able to go to sleep at night thinking, well, you know what? The young man shouldn't have had a bad attitude. Oh, you know what? The young man shouldn't have smoked pot back in the day. Well, you know what? The man shouldn't have been walking down the middle of the street. No legislative fix is gonna solve that problem. Certainly no time soon. Americans have to decide that they don't want the state to abuse, traumatize, and kill in their name. And that's what this conversation needs to be focused on That's what needs to be happening in people's homes. That's what needs to be part of the reckoning with our American history.
1: We've also got popular culture, as you point out, going all the way back to Birth of a Nation. But I happened over the weekend to be flipping around channels. And I see a special victims unit uh, law and order episode just coming to an end where uh, one of the officers is helping a young girl who's been held captive. And he says, I'm a police officer. It's okay. You're safe now. There's an image of the police officer, especially after 9-11, of being heroic still. Uh, And in many cases, uh, I think uh, there are those, and uh, you point this out in your work, who have earned that. On the other hand, we have the demonizing of police officers Uh, during the 60s. uh, I saw a lot of that. Everybody in a blue uniform was called a pig. Still, I'd like to take this up a little bit with you when we come back from a break, because we're coming up on this. Uh, that is the stereotypes both ways and the extremes both ways and what to do about them, especially maybe in the popular culture. We're talking, if you just joined us with Khalil Gibran Muhammad, he's professor of history, race, and public policy at Harvard School, Kennedy School, and author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. If you have questions or if you have comments about the historical antecedents of the defund the police Uh, Movement, give us a call now. Our toll-free number, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email questions to forum at kqed.org. I'm Michael Krasny. You're listening to Forum, and our guest this hour is Khalil Gibran Mohammed. He's Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the harvard kennedy school he's the author of the condemnation of blackness race crime and the making of modern urban america do you have questions about the historical antecedents of the defund the police movement or do you want to join this conversation if so please give us a call toll-free number is available it's 866 6786 that's 866 6786 you can also get in touch with us on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or Email, any questions or comments you might have to forum at kqed.org. I want to get our listeners involved in this, Professor Mohammed. but I had mentioned before the break about the role of popular culture, and there's a lot of reassessing now, Gone with the Wind and Anjamima Jemima, of stereotypes of uh, black women particularly, but black people in general, uh, trying to move away from these racist preconceptions um, that have created a lot of controversy. And when you think about Birth of the Nation uh, and all of that popular culture from that point forward, uh there's a there's a criminalization element of that and a condemnation uh that ties in right with so much of what you've written about on the other hand police officers as i said have been happen to hear a editorial by paul harvey going back couple of decades ago where he was talking about it was just hagiography police officers are are saintly with all the work they do and many of them like after 9-11 were certainly seen in that light what do we do about all that stereotyping on both sides the demonizing of police as well they're all pigs
2: well you know i i hear um some of that in the context of protests. what i don't hear in terms of calling the cops quote unquote all pigs Is uh, people like myself as educator or other reformers who get up and go to work every day and try to Change the culture of policing in this country So I don't think it's a fair comparison between all the inputs of anti-black racism in our in the iconography of this country and the standards of most corporations that prey on low income people, overwhelmingly black and brown in this country to make a fast buck. Um, Or the corrupt, I shouldn't say corrupt, the legal and extra legal real estate practices that undervalue black property or try to restrict access of black home buyers into white communities. (laughs) So it's not a fair fight, the ways in which whites have come to learn through explicit messaging that something is wrong with black people by comparison to the radical critiques of policing as quote, unquote, all pigs. The other thing is there's an imbalance um, in uh, the actual legal structures. Um, Citizens can say whatever they want to say about the police. Police don't get to act on it. So what we've watched in these protests against police brutality is police officers abusing citizens because they didn't like what they were being called. But that's exactly the problem. When police officers get to dispense corporal punishment, not to detain a suspect so as to achieve justice or to save other people from getting hurt, then police officers are violating civil liberties and civil rights depending on the circumstances. And again, most of us think, well, he shouldn't have had a bad attitude, shouldn't have called the officer a name, shouldn't have gotten the officer's face. But Actually, as citizens, that's what allows us to have the liberty and freedom, quote unquote, that everyone's supposed to have. Look how many armed men, most recently in Tulsa, but in Michigan, went strapped to the teeth um, and got in the faces of state troopers. Did anything go down? No, nothing went down. Because white people typically understand that their political rights are protected. What they don't understand is that other people have those same political rights. And as long as politicians aren't incentivized to act on the egalitarian rights that we all profess, that we believe in, then we're going to see people having a false equivalency argument that black people owe um, police officers some kind of respect. No, what they owe police officers is the, the duty and right to do their jobs and not to impede them doing their jobs. But when they are corrupt or behave in criminal ways, then all bets are off.
1: Let me read a tweet that's come from a listener named Craig who says, would Dr. Muhammad comment on the idea of making police departments meet minimum international standards for human rights as do most liberal democracies? A new study from the University of Chicago has found police in America's biggest cities are failing to meet basic international human rights standards when it comes to the use of lethal force.
2: Yes. Well, again, Americans have accepted various uh, notions that what happens in the rest of the world doesn't apply to the United States. Uh, we ignore UN uh, security um, agreements when they are inconvenient for our own national interest. Uh, Antonin Scalia, the late Antonin uh, Scalia and uh, uh, avatar of, of the kind of Reagan revolution that uh, shaped jurisprudence in this country in the highest court for many years was famous for saying we will execute Mentally ill people will execute uh, young people because we don't have to be held to some uh, International standard of what happens in the rest of the world by our own standards Our poverty rates exceed or match some of the poorest countries in the world When we look inside of some of the poorest states in this country like Mississippi as a UN investigation uh, published results in 2018 So we've got a lot of tremendous hubris and arrogance in the political culture of this country and it shapes the way government functions. It, it shapes the way we treat our own citizens. And it's got to stop.
1: Talking again with Khalil Gibran Mohammed, His book is The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. And he says uh, uh, that if you um, want to have police reform themselves, uh, you're talking about, I think I have this right. Uh, you said this on a couple of occasions. It's like uh, talking about the fossil fuel industry, solving the climate change crisis. But I want to go uh, also to get your thoughts about something else that I think is uh, of real importance here. And that's back to the idea of popular culture. But before I do that, I want to find out what happened to you personally. Um, Because you were in Philadelphia, you were in essentially a protest with the Black Student Union, I believe I have this right. And there were some free newspapers that you felt were certainly against what your protest was all about. And so you took the free newspapers, were confronted by a police officer, and The police officer, what, said in court you uh, sort of defied the fact that how how come you don't have a record or words to that effect? Do I have that right?
2: Uh, Most of it. um, So I I was detained uh, while participating uh, in a campus-wide protest led by the Black Student Union. We had uh, been uh, frustrated by several attempts to get the editorial board of the student newspaper to change its policies about conservative ideas, mostly anti-black ideas. Black students don't belong here, they're not as smart, affirmative action is a joke, there's a double standard, they get away with things, white students are gonna be, this is the kind of thing. So I didn't wanna just say conservative as if this was just some kind of partisan ideological thing. We actually were being subjected to uh, anti-black speech in the student newspaper that all of us read because that's how you got jobs. And I was uh, entering my senior year when all this was happening. So because the student newspaper refused essentially to respond to first our request later our demands, we thought as an act of protest, we would just take all the free newspapers. You know They didn't cost anything, but we thought maybe they'll listen uh, if nobody gets to read the newspaper today. In hindsight, as a, you know 48 years old, looking back on it, I wasn't thinking a whole lot about First Amendment rights and how sacrosanct they are, uh, and, and none of us were. But nevertheless, uh, a cop runs into me, tells me to stop and drop the papers. I say, these are free papers. Um, Why should I stop? And so eventually uh, he hits me with a baton. I'm taken into custody. I'm sitting in the local precinct on campus and uh, they find out it's a student protest. I'm released, I get sent to the hospital. um, And the the university is now upset that uh, the students like myself were treated this way. At an arbitration with the officer being represented by, I believe the fraternal order of police, but it could have been another union. During the arbitration hearing, I was told by the university counsel that the lawyer would probably try to rattle me so as to show my true colors in this meeting. By that time, I'd graduated with a degree in economics. I was working at a big six public accounting firm. Um, I mean, so you know, even even the choice that I'd made as a career didn't match whatever stereotype the uh, lawyer wanted to portray. Nevertheless. Um, He got frustrated in the meeting. I kept my cool, uh, explained why I did what I did, what was going on. And he yells across the table at some point uh, in the meeting, uh, you should have a record. And uh, it, it hit me immediately that he was frustrated because he couldn't get me to act out and he couldn't point to something in my past that would discredit me and then would justify the way the officer treated me. Just like George Floyd's prior criminal history somehow is supposed to justify his dying uh, in Minneapolis uh, a month ago, or just like uh, Arbery, Ahmaud Arbery, running through a uh, community of mostly whites, being chased in a pickup truck by two white racists, uh, shoot him down the street because they think he fits the description of somebody uh, who might have been prowling around the neighborhood. Uh, I mean, even if even if it were true that Arbery had ill intent, um, he wasn't running down the street with sheetrock under his arm. So, they want to make you to into a lawbreaker, somehow.
1: basically. And, and, yeah, yeah. One, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what, what happened and to so, that officer? So the was, I,
2: I, yeah. yeah, so the, the officer was, uh, you know, I actually don't know. Um, I, I don't want to make anything up. only thing I remember from that day is that uh, he apologized to me. He was embarrassed by the way the lawyer behaves. Um, and he had probably had a moment of reflection himself over time that, you know what, I probably overreacted. Uh, None of us really knew what was going on. And, you know, I wish it hadn't gone down like that. That that would be my guess. Certainly he apologized to me. I never heard from the lawyer again.
1: Well, it helped shape you. I think it was a seminal experience in many ways from what I've read about it, Uh, what you said about it and what you've just related to us narratively. Is there also, though, a sense uh, you mentioned police unions that the the crux of reforming police has to do with the role of the unions, the police unions?
2: oh yeah beyond a doubt listen um and this has been a sticking point uh, i can tell you as someone who uh, is on the board of a nat- the largest national criminal justice reform organization in the country the Vera institute of justice um you know for 50 years this organization has worked within the criminal justice community offering technical assistance and and various reforms that would improve outcomes for everyone less racism less abuse More legitimacy. That's been kind of the nature of the reform effort for decades, and the Vera Institute has been part of it. But the Vera Institute itself has not solved the the riddle of collective bargaining rights. And so there's only so much you're going to get away with when it comes to rebuilding a police force as long as the union itself refuses to go along. What we've learned about Minneapolis is in many ways it was a model police agency for having taken the advice of a lot of reformers. Uh, some of whom were involved in Obama's 21st century task force on this. And uh, at the end of the day, as we now know from more reporting, that Bob Prohl, one of the lead local union leaders, has been basically saying, you know, we're not following that stuff. You know, do your training, but go get warrior training uh, on your own, because that's what you really, you really need to know how to kill people um, to be an effective police officer. So until we deal with the reach, influence and protections that police officers shouldn't have because they have a monopoly on violence and a state authority to use it, we're going to continue to see roadblocks to significant reform.
1: I think we have a caller who has a relevant comment. Martha, that's you. Good morning. You're on the air. Martha, are you with us? Uh, uh, Let me read a comment here. Um, It's a comment from Martha. I'm sorry. I thought it was a call. Police do not seem to have the mindset to be a part of the solution. Perhaps they should be disbanded or given a six-month notice of furlough, after which they can apply on the condition that they pass a character and fitness test. This approach is similar to what happened to teachers and air traffic controllers and other public servants who went on strike. Attorneys have to pass a character and fitness test after they pass the bar exam. Character and fitness are essential. And public servants, passing a weapon skill test is not enough. Your thoughts, Professor Mohammed?
2: I think Martha is right on the money, and I love that she's making the connection. Look, the notion that somehow police are above uh, the kind of draconian efforts that have been directed to air traffic controllers (laughs) for crying out loud in the Reagan administration, or teachers who have been subject to all kinds of austerity measures over the past decade, a lot of it led led by uh, Democratic Party elites and left-leaning philanthropic organizations like the Gates Foundation, the idea that you could take the occasion of Hurricane Katrina, go into New Orleans and literally disband the entire public school system to be replaced by a charter school system because the quote-unquote teachers unions were in the way of progress. So how in the world did police officers become such a protected class of workers, of public servants in our society, except for the kind of fear mongering and crime moral panics that have been going on around black people and brown people or Mexican rapists and criminals, this kind of stuff, this law and order uh, rhetoric that's been deeply influential in our political culture for the last 50 years. So Martha's right, everything should be on the table. And uh, just to be clear, a colleague of mine named Phil Goff, who runs the Center for Policing Equity in New York City, has been looking closely, both through empirical trials that is studying uh, police behavior and attitudes but also coming up with interventions so that law enforcement community can have character tests personality tests you know basically find out who, what kind of people are best suited to have this extraordinary power on our behalf that's well, a lot get, that hasn't been going on
1: I, I, i'm eager to get your response to another listener named louise uh, who comes at this from a very different point of view than martha She writes, if you don't violate laws or common decency, one probably will not have problems with the police. We need law and order enforcement and protection. I trust them, think they are most often fair. They put up with being spit at, yelled at, shot at. My 75 years of life, I have not had a problem with police.
2: What would you say to Louise? Well, yeah, so I I would say to Louise that uh, there are good people who work in all kinds of uh, environments that are not built to deliver health for the rest of us. So- you know, Louise might think that coal miners should have their jobs back, despite the fact that the fossil fuel industry is literally killing the planet. Louise might think that doctors should continue to cater to uh, people with private and employer-based health care, rather than making sure that everyone in this society has a decent shot at being able to see a doctor and not have to go to the emergency room. Louise might think that, you know, all these great teachers in our country um, are all working from perfect curricula when in fact we know that uh, a lot of curricula in this country is broken and we know that a lot of resources aren't working. So you can have quote unquote good people and Martha can have, an, I'm sorry, Louise can have uh, an experience of never having been subjected to uh, abusive policing and, and policing still be an industry that is broken uh, and that uh, it, it is producing toxic outcomes in our society.
1: Another listener, Beth writes, I grew up hearing the term peace officer versus police officer, which made a huge difference in the way people viewed the role of the officers. Less fear, more community support for funding programs that made for a healthier community, which in turn required fewer officers and saved money. Professor Muhammad. You
2: know, I'm a historian, so I don't really know. Uh, I mean, People might call police officers whatever they want to call them, but uh, peace officer is not a meaningful distinction in terms of the organization and structure of policing in America. There are a lot of police officers and members of law enforcement that talk about community policing, for example. Uh, these are variations on a theme, and the theme is essentially that we're going to basically do mostly what we want to do, but we're going to play nice as much as possible or when it's convenient to do so. Let me give you an example. Uh, In the 1940s and 50s, New York City began to pioneer uh, something that they didn't call community policing, but that's exactly what it was. They began to set up police athletic leagues. They wanted to spend time with black youngsters in the city to to get to know them. But the problem is that uh, mostly those police athletic leagues became a form of surveillance so that they could figure out who the bad kids were and then harass them uh, if something went wrong in the community. In other words, Uh, policing has always been a form of surveillance, even if it was presented as something on a a nice pretty platter, like a peace officer. The point is that white communities have commanded more respect, more political power, and more accountability. Black and brown communities have had less of all three of those things. And so whatever you call it, policing has been um, uh, unfair and unjust as a system when it comes to um, communities of color.
1: You see a connection to what's going on now with the disproportionate number of black and brown people affected by COVID-19?
2: Oh, absolutely. You know, we have, uh, we have the problem of the uh, contemporary consequences of institutional racism in housing and education, in the job market, in food insecurity, layered on top of a health system that uh, doesn't work well for low-income people anywhere, whether they're white and in Appalachia or black in Harlem. And now you get this global pandemic and we see two things happening. One, excuse me, that the the people at the lowest end of our society who are living in the most congested uh, conditions with the fewest options uh, for uh, quarantining in a safe way are then being subjected to higher rates of infection and and death. And then they're also being told to go out and, and do the work so that the rest of us, who live more affluent lives or who are more spread out or have more options uh, can have food on our table, can have electricity running into our homes. I mean, the pandemic has exposed in probably the most visible way possible prior to the protest, but now layered underneath the protests, the profound racism and inequality in American society.
1: We're talking again with Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and he's the author of The Condemnation of Blackness race, crime, and the making of modern urban America. I'm going to read a couple more comments from listeners. Uh, Allison writes, I see the problem with police similar to pedophile priests in the Catholic church, corrupt members of an organization being protected from prosecution and the organization unwilling to make real reforms without extreme pressure from victims being implemented. The police are public servants and they should be held to the same standards as other public workers. And Ron writes, we're supposedly very individualist and libertarian in America, but ask one question and you'll see the lie. When someone advocates for law advocates for law and order, ask them to explain what order is. Any attempt to explain will reveal the real meaning of white privilege. And a tweet from Michael with a question for you, Professor Mohammed. Michael says, I've read that gun control laws of the 1800s were designed to disarm black people. What is your take on that?
2: Well, Michael's exactly right. Now, sometimes a a question like that and pointing to that evidence becomes an argument for uh, arming Black people under their Second Amendment rights as a way of restoring uh, their civil rights. Clarence Thomas, for example, made this argument in the Helen decision, which is, uh, I'm sorry, in the McDonald decision, which was a decision about Chicago uh, in 2011 in the Supreme Court upholding uh, the rights of, of Chicagoans to, to carry uh, guns in a city that obviously has too many as to begin with. So he's right, black people were disarmed in the 19th century. Uh, they were stripped of their second amendment rights at the end of slavery. Um, across the South. Now, there's some complications in that history, which, you know, we'll go on for another time. There were local black militia for a time during the Reconstruction period, but more or less by the 1890s and the turn of the 20th century. Those black militias were uh, disbanded by various state governments and black people were systematically disarmed um, in terms of public policy.
1: And let me bring a caller on, OV. that's you. Thanks for waiting, you're on.
2: Uh, I'll, I'll be very quick. I, would, I see one one uh,
0: aspect of this that you folks are not really dealing with is the economic basis for racism and therefore a police oppression. Racism was developed to justify the enslavement of Africans. It wasn't because they thought Africans were superior, but they needed a, a slave population, so they saw a uh, a group of people in Africa, they enslaved them and then came up with the rationale. After slavery, uh the blacks were, labor was exploited by the convict leasing system where people who were charged with vagrancy were put in jail and then leased out to the former plantations. When you had the black ghetto, it was a way of segregating black people and extracting the labor from them at the same time. Now, black people and poor people are not needed by this system, this surplus population. They are seen as the garbage that needs to be thrown away. So let's deal with the economic basis. Of racism. In other, words, in other words, capitalism depends on racism. I don't know if uh, your your guest can really um, talk about this at the Harvard Kennedy School of Public Relations, but this is let's let's deal with the the economic basis of racism and therefore of police oppression.
1: Well, it's not as if uh, the guest has. Uh, Short-sighted on that. I can reflect on that from having read his work. But uh, you want to respond to O.V. specifically, if you could, Professor
2: Muhammad? Actually, I don't have to add anything to it. I thought it was a brilliant summation. I mean, we didn't get to it as a talking point in this conversation. We didn't actually talk much about slavery. We talked about slave patrols. But the bottom line is policing has always been policing of the essential workers of society who have been the essential workers to build wealth in a capitalist economy. He's right. at every step along uh, the historical chain that he described there. So I'm grateful for his call and his contribution to this conversation.
1: And here's Shabazz. Shabazz, welcome. You're on the air.
2: Good
3: morning. Um, uh, excellent book and information. I just wanted to say that uh, with all of the, uh, the bringing down of the Confederate statues and other uh uh, Holdovers from um, from slavery, we are not yet getting to the very root of the problem, with is the image of God placed in the flesh and blood body of a white man, and uh, called Jesus on the cross, who appears to us as both our persecutor and our savior, all in the same breath. And this, uh, <clears throat> if you read the comments of the person, the man who designed the Confederate flag, he said that it was his heavenly duty to preserve uh, our white superiority. So if we want to get to the root of the problem of racism, we have to begin to deal with the image of God or the son of God placed in the flesh and blood body of all European and spread all over the world, you're finding it in hotels, motels, in the kitchen, the dining room, the living room, the bathroom, the bedroom of every home in the in the, in, the, in the country. So, Bads, let me I'd
1: interrupt like you. Hear. I'm sorry, but we're we're getting short on time, and I'd like to hear what Professor Mohammed says to uh, what you just presented.
2: Listen, if I had Shabazz and Ob uh, as colleagues at the Harvard Kennedy School, where I have 194 faculty, and uh, until July 1, I was the only black-tenured professor on the books for the past year. We've got a black woman actually coming from Berkeley, Sandra Smith, a sociologist, to join me. But now, now there's two black-tenured professors uh, at that place. Uh, I would be a happier camper. Uh, both of them are right on the money. Uh, look, European eyes colonize the world. The Europeans colonized the world uh, as much as they could. Asia put up a pretty good fight and continues to do so. Uh, but to, to remake the world in a European image has been the work of, of 500 years of various forms of colonization and domination. And so the question is, are, you know, as Trump has made very clear in his own thinking about this and his followers, like, you know, we're going to hold on to that uh, as long as we can, because that's the only way. Uh, that this world works in the way that we want it to work. Uh, other listeners on this call, if they want a, a different world to be for the 21st century, they're going to have to give up some things.
1: Does that include, uh, we've got seconds left here, but getting back to popular culture, we have to see major changes there as well?
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, R- Rashad Robinson, who heads the Color of Change, uh, did commissioned a study from the University of Southern California, uh, a couple years ago, and they came out a report that pointed out the harmful effects of shows like Cops. Cops is now no longer on the air. That's a good thing. I mean, it's just a good thing. Here's a show that, if nothing else, is a form of entertainment, preyed on low-income people as caricatures that, that we ought to laugh at. I don't, that's not the kind of society that I want to live in.
1: Professor Mohammed, good to have you with us. I appreciate you and your work. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Khalil Gibran Mohamed, he's Professor of History, Race, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and author of The Condemnation of Blackness, Race, Crime, and the Making of Modern Urban America. And you can always let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum by emailing us, forum at kqed.org. And uh, we'll be talking tomorrow with Janet Napolitano, who is leaving her position as president of the UC system and will be retiring officially in August. Thank you for being a part of this morning's program and for all of us here at KQED Public Radio, I'm Michael Krasny.